You're listening to Amphibicast. This episode of Amphibicast is sponsored by Grey Ghost Creations. Specializing in unique wildlife art for lovers of reptiles, amphibians, and arachnids, Grey Ghost Creations offers a wide variety of art prints, stickers, pins, necklaces, and more. To find more unique original art, be sure to visit Grey Ghost Creations on Etsy at www.greyghostcreations.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, and this week we're going to touch on a genus that I've wanted to address for quite some time. Uh, touched on it briefly in an earlier episode. Of course, that's the Amariga genus. And uh, I have Sean McIntyre, who is a hobbyist and breeder of Amariga, and we're going to kind of uh, take a deep dive into the genus and some of the species that we're going to talk about, some of Sean's experiences. And we're also going to touch on kind of the hobby in Canada as well, because uh, here in the U.S. we have our own kind of, you know, community and whatnot. And uh, I know there's some interesting parts to the Canadian hobby. It's, I know it's kind of close-knit, so we'll talk about that too. But before that, of course, the usual stuff. I want to thank everybody for your support. Podcast uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc., uh, goes a long way. I want to, you know, give everyone a nice thanks, everyone who's given me the nice reviews. And uh, if you're interested in supporting the show, there's a couple of ways to do so. Best way is to become a patron on Patreon. Uh, most popular tier is the $5 a month tier. That'll get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode, which is uh, pretty awesome. And uh, if you want to support the show in a different way, consider uh, checking out some of the links in the link tree. Uh, you can get some cool merch if you want to get some frog uh, shirts, t-shirts, etc., stuff like that. I've got that there. And, of course, if you want to get a discount off of an in-situ ecosystems vivarium, follow the link in the link tree, and that'll take you to the uh, to the uh, in-situ ecosystems website. You make a purchase through the link in the show notes, and you'll get a 10% off uh, just for being a listener of the show. And uh, I think that's it. I think I got everything cleaned up, ready to go. Sean, how are you? It's uh, great to talk to you. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Is that is that the Amariga calling in the background that I hear, or is that something else? Yes, that is. Uh, I think this is the bilinguist going right now. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear about yeah. him. So, <laughs> I uh, want you tell me tell us about yourself first. How did you get into dart frogs? Like, what was the you know what was the the eureka moment where you said uh, I want to start working with dart frogs, and what led you to work with Amariga? Yeah, well, um, there wasn't really a one eureka moment. Um, you know, I've always been a big fan of amphibians and animals in general, but I was always that kid that would like to go hunting in ponds for frogs and snakes. And, uh, you know, especially in Canada here, the leopard frog, I thought was just one of the coolest animals on the planet. And, um, I'd had a leopard gecko for years and years and eventually it passed away. And being an elementary school teacher, I had this 30 gallon aquarium and I thought, okay, well, um, I'm going to do something cool for my classroom. I'll bring it into my class and we can do something. And then I just started, you know, researching animals and, uh, what I could possibly bring in for them. And, uh, I just came across dart frogs and I, I was just kind of sh- so shocked and I didn't really know much about them. And, um, as I started doing more and more research and realizing how awesome they were, I kind of thought at the time, well, sorry, students, uh, I, you know, I can't bring these into the class. Uh, these are, these are coming to my house now. Uh, not that I had told them I was going to do that, but, um, I just got so obsessed with them almost instantaneously when I saw and started researching about them. Um, and then, you know, hopefully like a good hobbyist, um, spent, you know, a few months doing my due diligence with the research, um, collecting all the materials to build a vivarium. And, uh, and then finally, once it was all planted, 
Um, you know, I got my first uh, dart frogs from uh, Understory Enterprises, and uh, they were Azurius, uh, which if anybody's going to start off with dart frogs, I would I would still recommend, even though we're talking about Amarega today, the Azurius is, is a perfect frog for most people. But um, I had a little toy when I was a kid. It was a little plastic dart frog, and uh, and it looked sort of like a cobalt or a Brazilian yellowhead. So at the time in Canada, I couldn't find Brazilian yellowheads, and um, I wasn't too fond of the cobalt. See, I liked the yellow on them, but I, I just didn't have quite as much yellow like the Brazilian yellowhead did. So I settled for the Azurius, but where I put my vivarium um, – there was sort of it's it's on one side of a window a big kind of bay window and i thought well geez okay you know watching all of these other dart frog room videos and frog tours from guys like uh, zach and josh's frogs and troy goldberg and um you know there's there's so many great um frog room tours out there i thought okay i'm gonna at least do another vivarium on the other side to mirror it and so then eventually i was able to find brazilian yellowheads and i thought okay i'm happy i've got my my dart frogs they're all together this is great and i thought i'm I'm done now i'm done um and then i thought well wait a minute understory enterprises brought in this little thumbnail this fantastic trunominal this is probably the coolest animal on the planet i'm gonna just get one of those and uh so i got a a smaller tank and and got a a group of those and then i thought well you know geez i promised i promised myself i was going to bring these into the classroom eventually so i'm going to do a 20 gallon and, and i'm going to build it with my class and i brought in some oil pock and they loved it and then uh and then by that point i had four different species and then it just kind of got out of hand um <laughs> uh, but i can talk about more of this later but really the the big the big thing for me was um that kind of put me over the top after all this because i feel right now this is typical for a dart frog hobbyist having a you know a couple of different tanks with species in it um was mark pepper at understory enterprises um at the time was sort of removing himself from the dart frog aspect of the hobby he was going more towards just doing plants and uh, i was able to acquire some of his rare amarega and um and once i sort of got those frogs um that's when uh, it kind of exploded and I um, did everything I could to promote Amarig and the hobby and uh, and try to get them out um, to, to people that were interested because uh, I guess we'll get into my story with Amarig maybe in a minute, but that's my stepping into the dart frog hobby sort of backstory, I guess. Yeah, I find that everyone has this maybe a genus or a certain species or even a locale that they tend to gravitate towards. And I know like here in the U S the large obligates of Faga histrionica and Lamani are like, they're like the heavy hitters. People really, really getting into them. And there's some, some big tank fans, but I, I've only met a few people that really were into Amarega. So what, like what attracted you to them? Like why kind of specialize in them and, and work with them? I know you mentioned, um, you know, getting them off of Mark Pepper, but um, what, like, what sent you down the, you know, the Amarega path? Yeah, so this is, I figure, this is, you know, if I've done any, anything in the hobby, this is sort of um, what I'm, I kind of have a little bit of pride in my contribution to it in this regard. Um, um, you know, just, I, I'm going to mention understory a lot, and I'll get into reasons why maybe eventually as well. But, um, you know, it's, um, I, I kind of consider Mark Pepper to be the the center of the dart frog hobby, and 
um, you know, I've gotten to know him over the years and he's, he's a great guy. And so, you know, I would just spend so much time on his website, just looking at all the frogs he had to offer. And, um, and he had these pictures of Pepperai, and I just thought they were a, a very cool looking frog. And the fact that, you know, his name is Mark Pepper and well, why are these frogs named Pepperai? And, you know, getting all the backstory about his discovery with them, um, in South America. But I thought, okay, well, this is a frog I, I, I really want to, um, I, I really, really want to get. There was a couple YouTube videos that had um, some abaseo being fed, and it just they looked like little torpedoes. And I thought, man, these frogs are so cool. Um, but when I went to try and find them, they were they were non-existent. Um, you know, I started talking to Mark at Understory, and uh, he didn't have any available. And then basically, what happened as I kind of went a little crazy trying to find these, I. I mean this literally, I contacted every single person that had ever posted anything about, um, you know, pepper eye or silver stone eye on any form that I could find. And I went on a mission to try and find these frogs. Uh, I contacted people in Canada. I contacted people in the States. I contacted people in Europe. And at the time, there was absolutely nobody in Canada that had them, not, not a single person. They were gone. Pepper I were gone. Silverstone, they were gone. Weren't in Canada, uh, except for uh, one little thing that will come up later. But um, Europe, um, they had some orange head and a few Abiseo and Silverstone eye, but um, no one was really interested in exporting those frogs into Canada. And that probably would cost me an arm and a leg, and uh, that was sort of a dead-end trail for me. Uh, the States, I think there were three people in can or in the United States that had them and, um, uh, two of them, they weren't breeding, uh, and one of them thought they only had males. And so again, it was, I made some great connections talking to these people. Um, but, but I just realized at the time that especially pepper eye and silver stone eye, uh, in North America anyways, um, was pretty much a dead end for me and again there were some people in the states that had uh, silver stone eye at the time uh, i think it was maybe two people uh, but again even exporting from the united states to canada uh, no one was really interested so i thought oh geez okay well i guess i'm never getting these frogs uh, i kept bugging mark pepper because i knew he had them though so they weren't gone from canada he had them they weren't breeding i kept saying hey how's it going are you getting any any offspring no 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 and uh, it was the same thing with the pepper eye and the silver stone eye. And uh, I mean, literally, this went on for probably a year, year and a half. And then it was finally for him. He said, OK, um, come and pick them up. I'm going to give you my my pepper eye uh, group. I thought, what? He goes, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm going to give you my pepper eye group. Um, he said, they haven't bred for me in a while. You know, I'm, he said, I'm kind of getting out a little bit. You can do it, you know, if you uh, – if you have any luck, you know, I, I want a chance to get some back off you in the future, but, uh, you know, have a go with them. And then, uh, that's what started it. So I got, uh, I got pepper eye off them and I was able to get them, uh, breeding, uh, not right away. It took a little bit of time. Um, but, uh, but then, yeah, that was it. And then after that, um, I got silver stone eye off them and then, once again, he was getting out of the hobby. I, I acquired uh, the, the, you know, uh, almost all of his rare MREG after that. So for you, was it kind of like the, the challenge, meaning like, I, I want to be able to acquire these and work with these, or was it like, was there anything specific about them? Like their, their coloration, their body size, their behavior, was any of that a factor in this too? Or was it just like, yeah, um, 
Yeah, tell us no, about it. No, definitely it was both. Yeah, definitely both. Like, um, you know, I like tinks. Tinks are big, bold frogs um, that are always out, um, and, I, and I like them. The, the Amarega, I feel, are the same. They're a very flighty frog. Um, you know, they, they're a lot – instead of hopping, they, they tend to jump. Um, they can be spooked, but – when they get uh, you know acclimated to a vivarium, you know they're they're super bold and um, you know I've got silver stony in my school classroom right now and the kids got their faces right up and they just stand there. Um, but I I just liked that they were different than a tink. Still, you know the, um, some of them are, are quite big as well. And for me also, I loved the call. You know, with a tink, you don't really hear their call. It's that little. A little squawk, that throaty chirp you can hear if you're really close. But um, the Amarega had this wonderful call. And I remember my grandma when I was a kid had uh, – she always had birds. And uh, it just reminded me of this chirping bird sound uh, from her house. And, and so they had all the qualities of a big tink just with this nice, wonderful call. Um, so that was what it was. And then at the same time, like I said, it was, it was sort of a mission for me. Um, my goal was to get some of these and to breed them and to get them back into the hobby because I just felt like it was a, it was a genus that was just, uh, you know, I, I knew it could be a very popular one if, if people just kind of got into them. And I think that's sort of happening now. So you think that there's going to be a greater interest in them because, like the whole the hobby <laughs> thing kind of goes through trends, and yes. you know whether it's a new import or a new locale or something. I mean, for all I know, people could lose interest in Azurius and, you know, in five years and then Azurius will be impossible to get. But do do you (laughs) think that that trend is kind of moving in favor of more Amarega availability and more interest among uh, dart frog hobbyists? Yeah, I think so. And um, I know, like I said, I'm going to talk about Mark Pepper a a lot, but I know when he's always told me when he had Pepper on, he had some of these Amarega, he just said he couldn't give them away, um, you know, a decade ago. And, uh, and I think that's why he sort of stopped breeding them because no one was interested. And it was, it was right around the time when I was really trying my, my best to find these. Like other people were also sort of looking back on, on Pepper Eye and Silverstone and going, you know, man, where did all these frogs go? Because they're, they're, they're cool and they're interesting and they make you know, great um, display animals in a, in a vivarium. And so I think at that same time, it's – it's you know that that shift in mentality where people were thinking the same thing that I was, and now they are, you know, quite popular. Um, and I'm finding they're they're popular sort of worldwide. You know, Canada's got a small little um, hobby market, um, but uh, I, I just think, especially on forums and um, talking to other hobbyists, it seems like people are starting to really wake up and go, "Yeah, this is a cool frog that that I wouldn't mind getting my hands on." It's it's definitely a genus that I was interested in. I mean, they're they're beautiful frogs, but I yeah. just never really. I mean, number one, I'm kind of I'm kind of maxed out collection wise now anyway, <laughs> and um, I, I I really don't have anything that I want to. Well, I don't have the resources to add anything at the moment. But if I were, I'd definitely be Amarega. Um, I mean, for the listeners, I know you mentioned a, a few of them before, but can you just give us a rundown of which species that you are working with and the locales that you have presently in your collection? Yeah, sure. So um, so I've got uh, pepper eye. Uh, so I have the yellow gold. Uh, and, and as far as Canada goes, that is basically what we've got. Uh, I know in the States they've got uh, yellow gold because they've, they've come from me. They've got um, maybe an orange group. 
and there's a few Abiseo hanging around, and then they've got they've got some in in Europe. Uh, I think there was there was four different locales that came in, so they've got them all in Europe. But the orange and the orange head are kind of getting mixed up a little bit. Uh, I've got Silverstone Eye, uh, Trivitata, uh, Hualaga Canyon, uh, which are the big uh, three striped ones that are uh, are pretty cool. You might hear them later tonight. Uh, I've also got chromes or the uh, seaside, depending on where uh, where you're uh, listening from. Uh, Pongolensis, which are the cool little green and yellow guys that no one can breed. <laughs> uh, I've also got bilinguists, so I've got um, bilinguists that have come from Wakuri. Uh, I've also got bilinguists that came from uh, Mark Pepper in Peru. Uh, initially we thought these might've been Parvula, but based on their call and other things, um, they're bilinguist. They look, they look slightly different than the ones from Mercury. Um, so we're trying to distinguish between the two. We're calling these ones, uh, bilinguist Peru. Um, also got yellow Bassari, which are pretty cool, big, uh, yellow colorful ones. Uh, and then Alt Amazonica, I've got, uh, the Sisa and then the Copperbacks are, just an incredible looking um, smaller Amarega that I am doing everything I can to get breeding and they just won't do it for me. So yeah, that's basically what I'm working with. Now, how, if you were to estimate how many generations in would you say from like import they are like, you know, from like F10 to whatever F10, 20, 30, like I, I, I have a follow-up question to that, but I was just wondering like how, like how many generations do you think have been captive bred from like the, you know, original or most recent imports? God, you know, I would love to know that. So basically, um, all of my Amarega are understory enterprises breeding groups. So um, as far as what the lineage is, I don't know how far removed they are from the ones in the wild or or their adult pairs. I sort of asked Mark a few times about this and, and uh, and I'm just not entirely sure. I know not this is an answer that's giving you any sort of definitive answer. Um, I, the breeding group that I have would have to be the best lineage that you can get because they've come – because any of these other Amarega are generally coming from understory and through Mark Pepper. Um, and so you know anybody else that has them have probably come through his frogs or my frogs at some point. But I, I would imagine probably a couple generations down. Okay. The the reason I ask is some of the, the species that aren't like the hobby is saturated with certain species in certain locales and they've been, you know, we're yes. probably at like, you know, F five hundred when it comes to, to generations. <laughs> and um I mean with with species and, and, and certain genera that don't really have that massive saturation into the hobby. I'm always just curious about how they're going to progress. And by that, I mean, I, I, I've heard, I mean, it, maybe it's just me again. I'm, I'm no expert in Amariga. You are. But I've heard that they're a little bit tricky to take care of. And especially with like the, the flightiness, like you mentioned. And I was just wondering if that flightiness and that, that jumpiness kind of mellows out with successful, with successive generations. And I asked that because I was having a conversation with um, Carlos from Zucali couple episodes back and he was explaining to me that the you know the the wild ufagalamani are like really really hard to get to survive as opposed to the ones that have been captive bred for multiple generations just because they've acclimated 
So I'm just trying to get a handle on the status of Amariga kind of, are they becoming easier to manage with successive generations or are they kind of just, you know, still the same as, as where they were? I mean, maybe I'm making it, I'm too, too difficult. Like I said, I was just, I heard that they were tricky to care for and it's, I'm just wondering if they mellowed out with successive captive breeding generations. Yeah, no. Okay. As far as the care goes, um, you know, they are typically a, a fairly hardy frog, especially the bigger ones, you know, like the silver stone eye and the pepper eye. Um, you know, once you have them established, they are going to be just as hardy as any other tink or any other frog in the hobby. Uh, you know, I remember reading on forums on uh, <clears throat> the dendro board, you know, five years ago or so, people talking about silver stone that once uh, once you put them in a tank, you can never move them because if you move them, they're going to they're going to end up dying on you a few weeks to months later, um, which uh, I, I think is is wrong. Um, <clears throat> basically, for me, I find the difficult about difficult thing about Amarega uh, is just sort of the breeding aspect of it. Uh, they are definitely a trickier frog to get breeding, to be consistent with. And then, you know, you could have problem with egg development, tadpoles. And then I find uh, with something like a pongoensis, even getting them to transition uh, coming out of the water can be a little tricky as well. So I've had to do certain things um, to make sure that they come out healthy. But uh yeah, as far as as far as they go when they are, you know, froglets and, and past there, uh, I find they're just as easy as any other frog to care for. They're just as easy, but it, it really is sort of that breeding aspect that is definitely a trickier part with Amarega. And it's it's only really certain ones too. You know, I have chromes that uh, breed like crazy, and the tadpoles are bulletproof. I've never had a, a single problem with them, but uh, definitely pepper eye, silverstone eye, and pongoensis. Um, are a different matter for sure. And as far as the husbandry, is there something that you would set it on par with? I mean, are they on par with most other dart frogs in terms of how you'd set up a vivarium? Yep. I, I have all my, I've designed all my vivariums basically the same. Um, I, I know that a lot of people think you need to have a water feature with Amarega. Uh, I have a little pond area with a couple of the tanks, but I find it doesn't, it hasn't made a difference in breeding um, or how bold the frogs are. I keep them all in the same frog room, so it's the same temperature. Uh, I hand mist the tanks, so they're all being misted um, in the same manner with the other frogs. Uh, you know, I, I do different things if I'm trying to get a certain group breeding. You know, either give them a bit more of a dry season or a wet season. Uh, but no, I, I think I think there's a lot of mist that these Amarega are this hard frog to to care for and and you have to be sort of a uh you know have to be a bit more experienced in order to get them but i think i i don't think that's true i think if you're your first time uh dart frog owner and you want to start breeding maybe don't get into them but if you're looking just for a pet for a nice display tank i think they are just as fine as any other frog uh and you know if someone came up to me and said this is my first frog i'd have no problem um you know giving Amarega to a to a newbie as long as you know like any other newbie they're showing me that they they're ready to care for them i'd heard that water feature uh you know um i don't know what you would call it like maybe misconception i guess but where did that come from what was the original rationale behind them needing water features well it's a good one um from my understanding is is that a lot of these Amarega species um have been uh located near running water in the wild um, 
and so people thought, okay, well, if it's if it's they're you know they're close to running water in the wild, maybe they appreciate the water in the vivarium. But um, from more that I'm hearing, that's not necessarily true. Um, you know, a lot of these uh, amaragua are found out in you know uh, plantation fields out and in, in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, it's one of these things like in the hobby, you know, you have a couple people that have an idea or make a suggestion and it catches on like wildfire and people kind of regurgitate the same thing over and over again in forms and they don't really know themselves, but they, you know, just say what they've heard and eventually becomes this myth and this thing and everyone thinks it's the way it's got to be. But, you know, I I really don't think uh, water features is a necessity with any of these frogs. Yeah, that's what I was surprised about is it's kind of generally considered that barring certain certain dis- like really elaborate display situations, I mean, I know people who do water features, but, you know, I'm not going to put them in the same caliber as someone who takes up, you know, plastic piece of like PVC, a uh, plastic piece of like acrylic and like, <laughs> yeah. you know, makes that little half aquatic, half terrestrial tank that we see on Reddit. But um, yeah, I was always wondering why that was because it seemed like it was kind of counter to what conventional wisdom in the hobby was it's like why would you give them a water feature and since most star frogs don't really necessarily benefit from it but you know, i always wondered that yeah you know, it's just it's uh one of those myth things i think that have that have cropped up and you know i'm sure there's people closer related to you know um you know finding amarigga that might have some more insight onto it but um you know it's from the people that i know and i've talked to um you know they just and no one, no one who breeds them uh, and has, you know, a number of amarega uh, in their collection really says that the water feature is a necessity by any means. So, yeah, that's that was, that was something that you thought you needed for amarega, and it kind of deterred you because I know water features can be a big pain, and I, you know, there's so many stories about people making a nice display tank and having the water feature break down on them or getting gummed up, and you know, so it's uh, definitely nothing you need to need to have for sure. I mean, I've gotten. Uh, you know, almost all my amarega breeding without them. So, and what kind of terrariums do you use? I know you said you 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 make you make your own, right? Well, no, no, sorry, I okay. just just the background and stuff. So, I uh, <clears throat> what happened? I I had an aquarium that I had my initial azurius in, and that's just what I had on hand. I bought a second thirty-gallon aquarium to match the other one for my Brazilian yellowheads. But when I started getting the pepper eye from Mark Pepper and when I knew that I was going to be acquiring a lot of his amarega, um, I wanted to go with racks and I wanted to go with front opening uh, vivarium. So I've just gone with Exoterra. Uh, they were easy. I got good deals on them close to me. I, I built my own glass tops. Uh, what I hated about Exoterra was that I that the, the black vent was so high up on the tank um, I felt like if you're ever trying to look into the vivarium, you'd have this big strip that would sort of, um, you know, get, be right in the middle of your view of the of the floor. So what I've done is I created the bottom high enough that the, I guess the floor is just underneath the vents, and I just put some, uh, I don't know what you call it, the stuff you put on um, in your drawers, that black sticky stuff to just kind of cover the front of the tank so you don't see all the. Uh, the high layers of, of substrate and I've got different systems I've used. So I basically build my exoterras so that uh, the vivarium really starts just below the vent and it looks a little bit more aesthetically pleasing in my eye anyways. But yeah, I just got, it's, it's basically exoterras that fit neatly on uh, racks. I was just able to get some hardware stores around here. And then I've, this is not my favorite technique, but I've uh, 
done the the dry lock technique with uh, a lot of driftwood and and cork bark and things like that coming off the walls and uh you know it looks great um i've gotten better at at getting the right paint color and everything but uh, i find the moss just doesn't quite grow as well as i would like on the dry lock so that's why i put a lot of cork bark in and it tends to uh base itself better on cork bark and then it can spread over a little bit do you have a preference for size or configuration because that's that's another issue that i heard was that amerega do will will do well in a a long tank i think mainly when i say it out loud it sounds kind of silly but because they're big jumpers yeah i i actually agree with that so um you know i went with the biggest yeah i went with the biggest tanks that i could find for them that fit on racks you know like i said i was going to be acquiring quite a few um different species so i i couldn't just build massive tanks because i just you know had to be more uh, efficient with my space so um for all my bigger amarega i've got them all in 36 by 18 by 24 tanks so there's 36 long, which is what I th- I think it's a perfect tank for an Amarega. They've got uh, – I always put – I find the more hides you have, the more comfortable a frog will get in the tank. So I've got lots of hides. The tank's also fairly long enough that they can you know hop around and, and uh, you know not be too cramped in there. Uh, I've also got my Pongoensis, which is a smaller Amarega in the same, same size tank. And uh, I'm also wondering if that's one of the reasons I'm able to get them breeding because they like having a bit more – more space as well. Yeah, I, I always heard that they were going to, I mean, to put it bluntly, that they were going to like just go like flying out of the tank if you opened it up and you didn't have like a buffering, like a buffer zone for them to, I guess, do their normal jumping behavior. I don't know. I guess it just, I'm just, I'm just burying myself with my ignorance of the, of the genus. <laughs> no, and actually I got to tell you that that's a fear. And uh, if I ever go on a way on vacation and, uh, and I have somebody have to come over and water, that is my biggest fear. Uh, yeah. I've had, I've had a few Amarega have to jump out before and I've had to go uh, and hunt them down and it's a, a big headache and a, a, you know, obviously stress level goes through the roof. Uh, but for some reason it's like they, they get used to their space and you know it's not like one of those animals every time you open it they jump out they just um you know i'm, I'm looking at my bassler eye right now and i've got uh one of the plant leaves is kind of hanging on the door and if i were to open it up with the frog hanging on the leaf he i could open it he probably just it would even come out of the tank and he would just sit there and if anything they just jump back into the cover um so i mean definitely front opening it's something to worry about with amaragas i'm sure I'm sure it happens, and and it could happen. And and once they're out, man, then you're you got a headache because they're so fast. Um, but it hasn't been a problem for me. And you know, when I first got them, you open up the door just a little bit, get the misty nozzle in there, and you know, now I, <laughs> you know, I take pictures, both doors wide open, um, you know, hold them open for a couple minutes, and it, they just just hang out there and sit there. And earlier you mentioned leopard frogs, and it's it's interesting because I'm, as I'm looking at pictures of the different members of the of the genus, um, they kind of have like you know how like leopard frogs have those kind of like well developed rear legs that are like you know like they're like jumper legs, whereas like with like Centaurus, yes. you know they, they they don't do these guys do leg day. You know, Tinctorius does not do (laughs) leg day. (laughs) So I guess, yeah, I guess it makes sense. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it it does seem a little intimidating to like open that tank because I've had that happen to me, not with uh, Amarega, obviously, but I've had it with like Santa Isabel's and 
um, some of those like really small like baby phyllobates, they just like you know launch themselves out of there. And I can imagine like a frog that's legit really a big jumper. How intimidating that must be. Yeah, yeah, no, it, like I said, it's it's happened. I've had some chromes jump out. Uh, I've had my pepper eye jump out a couple times, um, and a pongoensis here, or there, and, and that's it. My my silver stone eye is good. My trivitat, I got it. They ever got out? I'd never find them again. Uh, they're they are definitely the quickest uh, out of the Amarega. Um, yeah, it's it's. I've been lucky, you know. Watch this, you know. Knock on wood. Tomorrow morning, I'll open up a tank, and <laughs> they'll all be gone on me. But uh, so far. Uh, it's been it's been pretty good and they they are they are jumpers and it's it's interesting with as a tink hops around um these guys can really really move and i think the the trivitata are definitely the biggest jumpers and then probably followed by uh the silver stone eye and, and actually the the thing with the silver stone eye are um which is a little makes me nervous too is they are the most aggressive eaters i've ever seen so i've got I've got three groups that uh, I have, <clears throat> but um, two of them are, are older breeding groups that I got from understory. And uh, and it's in these two groups where uh, when I go to feed them, I put the – to dump the fruit flies in, they will literally jump at my hand and start attacking me to get the cup out of my hand. And they'll even bang their nose on the glass to try to get the, the fruit flies. So I, I had to be tricky. So I look at what side of the, t- the, the, the glass they're on. I open the opposite side. And I have to pour the the cup over onto their side so that when they start jumping at me, if they do get a little um, ambitious to get these fruit flies, they'll go towards the closed glass, not the one that's open. And I keep saying I need to get this on video because they're just uh, – it's quite a sight to see. And I think one is a, is a really old silver stone eye too, and he's got some cataract in his eyes. You know, I don't know exactly how old he is, but uh, I think just because he's losing his vision, he, it's like he senses me, he knows when feeding time is, and just gets unbelievably aggressive. A healthy-looking frog other than the cataracts. It's amazing how strong they can be too. Like, I mean, any, any dar frog, rel- I mean, relative to size, obviously, but like I'll, there are times when I've had to move individuals in my collection, and I'll usually use like a deli cup, like a 32-ounce deli cup or whatever, you know, whatever smaller and you kind of like put the lid over them and then they start hopping and they're almost like pushing the cup over <laughs> it's like well you know, want yeah it makes sense of how far they can jump right you know and the, the fact that they're such a strong animal and yeah it's pretty neat yeah what are your preferences for feeding a supplementation because i i'm always curious what other people do and what i mean again i'm complete i really have no experience with the species at all i mean do they will they take high di do they take just melanogaster will they take crickets like what like what are we looking at in terms of like feeder options and what are your supplementation preferences yeah so i i did i do um just fruit flies when i had the leopard gecko i hated crickets and i swore i'd never do them again um just to hear the chirping at night i know they would be smaller crickets that i'd use for these guys but i just didn't want to go that route so i do high dye and i do uh the mellows uh, and normally for the bigger um, amarag, I feed them the, the bigger fruit flies most of the time. I sometimes will will alternate a little bit here or there, depending on maybe what's really booming for me. Uh, <clears throat> as far as my uh, supplements go, uh, rapashi, uh, calcium, and then vitamin A, I do it on the 15th and 30th of every month. Uh, I also use super pig for um, for the silver and some more of the redder frogs. Um, there was another product that came out. I bought one pack of. I, I think they're they're out of business now. That were selling um, carnitoids, um, 
Oh, I can't even – it might be in my fridge here. Uh, so I was using that for a little bit for the Silver Stone Eye um, uh, Renarium. So I was using some Renarium products. And, uh, yeah, I try to just follow what <clears throat> what other froggers have done in the past as far as supplementing and, and feeding goes. Uh, nothing really outside uh, the ordinary for me here. Uh, I, with my frogs, I'm making about – uh, 72 cultures a week. Uh, it's, I do about 18 high dye and then I do the rest are mellows and, uh, and, uh, and that's about it. And I try to feed them. Uh, I do most of my frogs every, every two days. What kind of, do you have a preference for media? Do you, I mean, that's a lot of cultures. Do you make your own or you buy it? Yeah, no, I, I make my own. I was using uh Rapashi medium when I first got into the hobby and, uh, you know, that was fine. And, you know, when you only had to make a couple of cultures a week, uh, fairly economical. So, uh, now I'm using sort of a combination of, again, understory enterprises, um, uh, recipe that they have on their website, uh, bananas, applesauce, oatmeal, a little bit of vinegar, and then I throw in some, um, uh, um, some of the supplements into uh, the fruit fly mix as well too, and um, and with some uh, some yeast in it as well. And uh, it seems to be working. Uh, the fly cultures are booming, and hopefully with the supplements, the uh, some of the fruit flies are kind of passing that on to the frogs. And you're using like bananas, like from the grocery store, like actual bananas, or are you using like powdered. No, actual bananas, yeah. So it's uh, it's not it's not cheap feeding these frogs when you have so many. So uh, basically go through what is it 12 applesauce jars and then i normally go through oh geez close to 20 bananas a week with all of this see i'm intrigued now because i was using live well not live what am i saying live but i was using like actual fresh bananas and i had a problem with my cultures fermenting and they would spoil like really really quickly and i noticed like i'd open up the lid and it could really smell i mean i know that they they it has to ferment anyway. That's how the, the sugars break down and that's what they feed off of. But I, I couldn't get any cultures with, with just regular grocery store banana to do well. I did use powdered banana and I, that seemed to work well, but I, I don't know. Any, any, any thoughts on why I'm, why I might've failed? Jeez. You know, it's, it's funny. So, uh, as soon as I got off for Pashi, um, uh, you know, I, I realized, okay, this is, I can't keep this up. This is going to cost you too much. And first place I went was the understory website to get their recipe. And I've never had a problem, but I have heard other people saying that they've had issues with that. Um, I do know with my high dye sometimes that they um, they just, you know, if I do 18 of them uh, on a regular week, I'll have a handful that just won't, like you said, will ferment or they'll mold over or something just won't go right. Um, but it's it's mainly just a couple, a batch, and then the, the mellows are always fine. They're always bulletproof. Um, and I find they last, and I think maybe a little bit of vinegar maybe just helps them from molding over or having too many issues. Um, but no, I I find it's been you know it's probably been six years that I've been using this for, and I haven't had any issues. Um, different times of the year, especially living in Canada, um, you know, drier and wetter t- times of the year with humidity, uh, the the flies will have you know greater boom periods uh, than others. And sometimes, you know, um, I've got way more flies than I ever need. And then sometimes it, it gets a little scarce for a week or two. Um, we'll have to just sort of readjust temperatures or, or put on a humidifier or something. But no, as far as the the recipe that I'm following, the way that I'm doing it, it hasn't seemed to be an issue at all. 
Interesting. Yeah, I, it's like people have asked me, like, what, what recipe do you use? And it's honestly, what I'm using is not particularly sophisticated at all. I mean, I add a couple little odds and ends, but it's basically the, the potato flakes base that everybody else uses. But I find that you're right. Like different people will have different experiences. And I like I finally fine-tuned mine to the point where I'm happy with it. I'm getting good yields. But I also completely abandoned Heidi-Eye as well. Maybe that was part of the problem. Maybe um, the Heidi-Eye was just, the, the life cycle was too long. Maybe it was fermenting before they, I don't know. Yeah, no, they they are the biggest pain. I, I I hate them. I wish I could just do mellows, but because of I like I like to feed them to the the bigger amarega and sometimes the bigger tings. And um, the other thing I find too is when I get them to boom, man, they boom like crazy. And I get uh, I get so many flies from a culture that it's it's just it's a it's a good reassurance to me. But they are definitely tricky. Yeah, they take longer. Oh, geez, it's yeah, they, they can be a bit of a nightmare. And, uh, but yeah, when they when they boom for me, that's it's they're kind of my my bread and butter for for most of my frogs. And although I only make eighteen cultures of them a week, um, you know I can when they're really going strong, I can almost feed the majority of my frogs with just them. And I've got you know sixty other mellows that are are there for backup, uh, and and of course for the smaller frogs as well. But yeah, it's never easy. Everything's constantly changing, and you, just when you think you've got something down, you know it, it doesn't go the way you want, and it's uh, it's always a bit of a struggle with these guys. You ever have issues with mites? No, no. I, and, I, and that's the other thing too. I, I keep hearing stories that, you know, oh, you're always going to get mites and, and, um, it's, it's never an issue. I find when the cultures kind of last a little bit too long, then I start to get them. Um, but they're never an issue. I never lose any cultures because of them. Uh, I, I, like I said, knock on wood, I feel like after this podcast, I'm going to be going downhill because everything is going pretty easy for me and i'm not having issues at all with mites either i i think it just it just happens sometimes like yeah. i found that i mean as long as as once i kind of finally figured out what worked for me i kind of just timed it where i think i, I mean i mean there are mites but i think i've just been able to get ahead of them and I, I think a lot of that's to do with just <laughs> yes the, abandoning heidi eye altogether there's the melanogaster life cycle is just so much quicker and I, I, I don't know if this matters at all, but I, I, I mean, I'm not making 72. I'm making maybe like eight or nine every like two weeks or every three weeks. I started keeping mine on baking trays and I don't know if that has like, you know, like, like baking tray, like you'd bake like cookies on. And I don't know if there's like something on there, like Teflon or whatever, but I don't seem to get any kind of like contamination from culture to culture with mites. So that might just be a complete coincidence, but um, I mean that and the fact that I keep them away from the the older cultures, so I, I constantly rotate. But um, had a problem for a while, and then since I really started like I don't know, just being more aggressive about the timing and and keeping them on different things. I don't know. It se- that seems to have worked with me. Well, with me too. So I've got <clears throat> I basically got like a crawl space room. So I've got I've got a series of these plastic racks that I have and. So I'm very regimented. I do, um, you know, uh, Saturdays, I, I basically make the cultures, um, give them 24 hours and then, uh, put the coffee filters in and add the flies. Uh, and then, so they're, they basically get rotated around, um, the plastic shelves and they're, they're, you know, they're only in there for four weeks. It's basically, you know, three weeks waiting for them to boom. Uh, I use them for a week and then, then, then they're gone. So that could be part of it, the fact that I don't keep the old ones around for very long. But, you know, I mean, God, if I have 72 a week, 72 times four, whatever that is, that's how many uh, 
fruit fly containers I have in this sort of small crawl space area. So, uh, I think I'm just getting really lucky or maybe it's just whatever the recipe cycle that I'm doing, it just happens to be working for, for me and I have not changed it. And, um, I imagine if I was having problems, I'd had to adjust it and make it work, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a very regimented system that I have for these fruit flies. Well, you figured it out. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not jinxing anyone. (laughs) Everything, people, different things work for different people. And you know what? Everyone after a while, I think finds what works for them and, and go with it. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we, we kind of briefly talked about breeding earlier and, you know, I know you work with a lot of these species pretty closely and, you know, I don't expect you to share every little, you know, every little detail about some of the caveats to breeding, but like, what are, like, what are some of the, you know, the issues that go along with Amerigo with regards to breeding? Like what makes them difficult and, and certain, well, what makes certain species difficult and what makes certain species easy? We'll, we'll frame it like that. Well, sure. I, I think with Amerigo, I mean, the, the difficult thing is every stage. So just to get some of them to breed uh, is difficult. And, you know, I've had, um, I've had people in the States um, with certain Amerigo that I have that have messaged me and said, okay, what are you doing to get these to breed? Because I've tried everything. And my, my answer, unfortunately, is I'm not doing really anything different with Amerigo that I would for any other, you know, dart frog. Um, I think it may be a little bit of luck. Um, and I, I find that just to get them to breed is difficult. So, you know, uh, with my pongoensis, for example, um, you know, I had them, uh, I had a 3.2 group, um, in, in their tank. They were doing nothing. It was, I don't know how long it was, but it was maybe a year. Oh, uh, no, sorry. And then I had, uh, I put 1.1, another, another pair into the group. And then I noticed one day that I had lost a female and I thought, oh, geez, you know, I've got these frogs that, you know, they're difficult to breed and I, I really want to get them going. And now I'm losing, losing them before I even have an opportunity. And then it was a couple of weeks after that I lost um, the one female that um, I heard the calling. I thought, okay, here we go. And they started breeding and they have been nonstop ever since. So maybe it's the ratio. I, I am, you know, I don't know how old they are because they came from understory. Um, but that's sort of how I got them going. It's just, I ended up losing a female. And then after that, they, they just have been going for me. Um, probably the most, my, my most consistent frog. Um, I've got yellow bassari that I've got a large group. So, um, I think unfortunately I've only got a couple of females and they just will lay eggs like once every couple months. The problem with them is, um, I had to find the eggs before before the other frogs in tank do because they're super bad for egg eating. But then I find if I pull them out too early, uh, they'll start to mold over on me. So it's sort of this, I got to leave them in there long enough so that they kind of get started and then pull them out at the right time. Uh, I've since separated a pair to see if I can get them going in a different enclosure. Um, but with my yellow basser, I've had, you know, basically one really good clutch and, uh, I think I had 14 froglets and now they're gone and now I'm waiting for, for others. Um, the, uh, silver stone, I got, when I had them, um, they were my, as soon as I got them, I thought, okay, you know, this is it. I'm, I'm getting these out in the hobby. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm hundred percent silver stone. now, 
And uh, it was a year probably before I could get going. And uh, for me, it was there was a couple of YouTube clips that had some calling. So I would just play the calls in my frog room. And as soon as I would do that, uh, the female started going crazy. And then the male would started calling. And, uh, and I thought, yes, this is great. But it still took a couple months of consistently doing that before I really got them to go. And so it's it's just getting these frogs to, to breed initially, which is sort of the, the big problem. Um, and like I said, I got copperbacks right now, alt, alt Amazonica. And my God, I they're older frogs, so I don't know if they're just sort of done their time now, but um, they are a mystery to me. And uh, but the bilinguists go like crazy, my pepper eye go like crazy, uh, the Silverstone now I've got a hold back group, and man, they are super. Once you get them going, they go. It's sort of whatever that little trick is with the with the cycle of misting something, and uh, and then they're gone. I think that's a I think that's a yellow bass sorry calling in the background, but then the next problem is um, that once you get them going, even tadpoles can be finicky. So I tend to keep tadpoles in uh, in communal bins. So I keep about uh, six to eight tads uh, together. I find if you go anything over eight uh, in the in the bins that I'm using, uh, you're going to start losing a couple, if not the entire clutch. So it's really um, it's like they do you can't i find they don't do as well individual and if you have too many then they don't do as well either so about six to eight was the magic number for me uh i feed them the same uh same food that i feed the rest of the tads uh and then once they if they develop and they're healthy then the next problem is uh, with the with the smaller ones especially pongoensis is that the stupid little things drown themselves much easier than their frogs so the, the transition period from coming out of the water onto land, um, you've basically got to have, as soon as they pop their front arms, you've got to have the smallest amount of water, or you can end up losing a couple that just don't come out of the land properly. I, I don't I don't get what it is. Um, so I've done a couple of little tricks with that. Once I started doing that, then they came out just fine and there was no issues. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a constant struggle uh, the whole way through, and especially Silverstone Eye. I think the biggest thing is uh with people with tadpoles right about when they get to that point where they start developing their back legs they just sort of die off and i've gone through that where i've had clutches i've lost entire clutches um but maybe because the frogs weren't quite um breeding regularly but now that whatever it is it's changed i'm able to have less and less issues with that but yeah amarega it's just if it's it's every stage of the way something can be a little bit tricky and putting the whole thing together uh can be difficult you know once you get the eggs you go yes i got the eggs and then you lose the tadpoles and then once you finally get to your healthy tadpoles getting them onto land can be a bit of an issue but uh, typically once they're on the water or out of the water uh they're pretty hardy and pretty bulletproof and do you have um do you do like the dry season wet season thing like do you cycle at all or do you just kind of let it whatever happens run its course <laughs> Yeah, so pretty much it's whatever happens runs its course. Um, um, I just I typically will spray once in the morning and then let it dry out. Um, if I do want them to breed, so for example, I know with my pepper eye, uh, if I want them to breed, it's pretty easy. Um, I just will water the tank um, normally twice a day for a week, and then I got them breeding. Uh, so definitely, you know, I don't do you know regulated longer wet or dry seasons um 
but definitely misting a little bit more often for the pepper eye. It's it's pretty easy to get them going. Uh, I've tried that for copperbacks too, though. You know, having them dry out a little bit first, and then hitting them for almost an entire month with a wet season, and I've got nothing. Um, and then once again with pongolens, it's just because they are they're so consistent right now, and and no one else really uh, in the world. I think there's maybe two other people that have gotten them breeding. Uh, I just don't want to change anything, so I just keep them going exactly the same as I have been. Yeah, it's like that balance. You don't want to you don't want to take any take any chances. No, and it's been so long, and I thought, okay, well, I want to give these frogs a, a break, you know. Um, but you know, the tadpoles and the froglets are still coming out healthy, so uh, I just no, I'm just gonna let them do their thing and just see how long it it, it goes for. Because once again, it's a it's a group from understory, so I don't know how old they are, and I don't know, you know, I just want to if they stop breeding, am I going to be able to get them breeding again? Is my concern. And how like how well do the like the froglets adapt once they're out of the water? Like, will they take melanogaster right away? Do they have to have springtails or like what? How would you set up like neonates? Yeah, so definitely the smaller amorega, uh, definitely a lot of springtails off the bat. Um, so I just have you know grow up bins with uh, cocoa husks and some uh, and some oak leaves. Um, I normally put just a little bit of a pond area in the in the grow up bins. You know, super small because these. These guys can be a little tricky in the water right off the bat, uh, but definitely springtails. Um, larger amorega, uh, like the trivs and the silver and the silverstone eye, they can basically go right to fruit, fruit flies already. Although I do still give them springtails as well, but uh, yeah, it's amazing, especially these silverstone eye. They uh, they they come out fairly big and and they're ready to go right off the bat. And how long do you like to hold them before they go up for sale? Because like I know, you know, like people like to hold on to a faga for a while. I mean, is it is it the same thing as like tanks where like they're just kind of ready to go when they're ready to go or do you have to hold them for a while? Like do they go through a delicate stage? Yeah, I, I think they go through a bit of a delicate stage, um, even even more so than uh, tinctorius. You know, tinctorius, you know, if you have an Azurius or a Brazilian head, uh, my Brazilians come out super big. And <laughs> and I almost feel like, oh man, someone could take this as soon as they're coming out of the water almost. But uh, I typically, with any of my frogs, it's going to be at least four months. But with the Amorega, um, I definitely um, like to keep an eye on where they're at because I find they're they can sometimes be slow growers initially and then they have like a, a growth spurt um, after a couple months. So I like to kind of wait until they get that initial little spurt. Um, but then once they've had it, it's actually almost better to sell them a little bit um, before they get too much bigger into that um, subadult phase because be, just because they're so jumpy that they do a little bit better shipping as a smaller frog too. Uh, you know, they, once they get big, they're really hammering away in those, in those plastic containers. And so to, to go out in about five months and be perfect for, for most of the larger Amorega, uh, and then the smaller ones might even be a little bit longer than that. I just like to make sure they're, um, you know, they're, they've, they've grown to a point that then, you know, a regular frog hobbyist will, will, won't have any issues with them. And what about aggression are there any like any social dynamics that people would need to be aware of like you know male on male on male aggression female on female does, does any of that happen in your observations yeah no this is the other reason why i was really into amarig i should have mentioned this earlier it's because they do so well in groups now uh, as far as aggression goes uh, i have i've never seen an amarig uh, fight ever um, no aggression at all. The only problem, the only issue is, uh, the egg eating and they're, they're horrible for that. So, um, you know, if you do have a group, um, 
you know, I like to sometimes um, have eggs develop in a tank for a little while. I just find they they do better sometimes when I pull them out. But um, you know, my peppery, they're they're little devils for eating eggs, and the yellow basset rye as well too. Um, but no aggression, man, they do so well in groups. And I've got a I got a really big yellow bassalari group and they do so well in there and you know it's constant calling and um it's sort of almost a reason why you might want to get these frogs i know you know people like to always get a lot of a species or they they like the idea of mixing and they find out oh well that's a that's a big no-no so you know to get a frog that can do well in a large group this would be a definite choice and why do you think it's it's so prevalent in in Canada? I mean, we we kind of talked on this a little earlier, but I kind of want to get into the the hobby in Canada. Uh, I mean, I know obviously understory is is you know out of Canada, but I know he. I actually, I'm actually having him on the show in a couple of weeks, but um, awesome, good, you should. <laughs> yeah, I know it's been a long time coming. I want to. Um, well, I'll, I don't want to get too much into it now, but. Um, yeah, I know that you know understory being a big presence in in Canada probably helps, but um, I mean, to my knowledge, I don't know that many people who even even keep them here in the U.S. Like, what's so unique about Canada besides the fact that understory is kind of you know located out of Canada? Like, what what's like what's the appeal? Well, you know what? To be honest, I I think that's it. I think that's that's the reason. I think it's because um, you know. You know, and once again, I, I boy, to get Mark Pepper on your show is going to be fantastic because, man, I can listen to that guy talk about dart frogs all day. And, you know, just to to mention him is, I mean, he his knowledge of everything is so in-depth and so detailed because he is the one that, you know, has gone to Peru. He's the one that has, you know, um, gotten these frogs. He's the one that's made them available in the hobby. So, you know, if you're talking about all these Amorega and, you know, why are they in Canada? Well, because he's brought them in and, he, and he's in Canada. He is the guy that's responsible for all this. I mean, man, he has Pepper Eye named after him, right? Uh, so, you know, if you look at Canada, I mean, uh, they're becoming more popular. Um, but really, they've only really become popular, like I said, the past maybe four years or so um, since I've acquired, you know, a lot of Mark's uh, Amorega and uh, was able to get them breeding. And then, you know, people have bought them and, uh, and that, now they're here. So I think it's just sort of this transition where the frogs are originating from Canada. Uh, so the, the Canadian market got first dibs on them and now they're sort of starting to cross over um, into the States. And uh, I know that, you know, some of these Amorega can come from, in from Europe, but uh, I think the majority of them are still coming through understory. Um, and, uh, and that's just really the only reason why it's sort of booming in Canada is just our availability to get them first. And, and now it's transferring over. And as far as the hobby goes, I, I mean, I have a lot of listeners and I have a lot of, you know, friends and buddies and whatnot who, who are in Canada. Uh, I, I mean, I'm still, I don't know, just cause I'm as an American, I'm just curious about the hobby in other countries. And in Canada, I mean, the, the whole Everyone I've spoken to, the whole, even like the the reptile hobby is relatively small. Like when there's an expo, it's not like here where you have like places like Tinley or the Super Show where there's, you know, probably thousands of people. Like in your estimation, like what's the, like the size of the dart frog community in Canada? And let me, let me just preface that. I mean, here we've got like real hardcore hobbyists and I guess all of us kind of know who each other are. I and mean, it's not like massive amounts of people, but You've also got a lot of, I guess what you'd call like casual keepers, like people who just have them 
aren't really like you know like super involved in like the the greater community and they might have some Missourius, they might have some erratus or something like that i mean how common is it for people to have dart frogs in canada just you know without being like a, a really like hardcore hobbyist yeah well it's definitely a much much smaller hobby in canada than in the states i mean for sure and not just because canada or you know canada has a much smaller population but it's just it's just not as popular so we have you know um a few big breeders uh in canada obviously understory um jungle jewel and there's a couple other ones that are are starting up uh as well and i'm sorry if anybody's listening i'm I'm forgetting to to mention you but uh you know, there's, you know, I would say there's a handful of sort of the big players in Canada. And I think we all know each other. We all communicate. We all talk. We all, you know, buy frogs off each other. And then from each one of those sort of big players, you get the the filters, right? Um, the people that are just, you know, they have, a, you know, one one tank of frogs or a couple or you have your, uh, you know, a couple of repeat clients here and there. Uh, so, I mean, people have them. They have them all across Canada. Um, but it's, it's so small. And if you look at, you know, our, our, our poor Canada, um, uh, website that we used to have in Canada ended up folding because it just wasn't being used. You know, there weren't enough people that were on it. Uh, Facebook and other social media platforms were taking off. Um, you know, we have, uh, the Canadian Facebook, uh, Canadian dart frog Facebook group, uh, which is going strong, uh, you know, Phil Ramos uh, from Green Oasis is doing a lot of uh, good things to promote dart frogs in Canada. And uh, so, you know, we're, we've got pockets of sort of the big players and, and then just the regular hobbyists, but it's, uh, it's definitely, I think it's growing too, because even right now, you know, if you, if you're looking for different places to, to sell frogs and to market your, yourself, uh, when I got into it, uh, you know, a few years ago, it was it was small, and, and now I notice if I'm if I'm on these particular sites, it's much more difficult because there's so many people that are you know are selling Azurius and and other Dendrobates and Erratus and things like that. So it's growing, but uh, I mean it's a fraction of what what you get in the United States for sure. And uh, hopefully it continues to grow because it, they're definitely you know when I have kids in my class and for my school come in and, and look at these dart frogs you know to have a diurnal animal that's out that's bright colorful is hopping around your tank uh it's an exciting it's an exciting it's an exciting pet and uh you know unlike my leopard gecko i had years ago that you know would maybe come out at night to, to feed um <laughs> uh, you know it's it's something that uh that would make for a nice display animal yeah that was another thing i wanted to ask you about i mean obviously you're an educator and you you know you work with i think it was elementary school you said right yeah um, I mean, how, like, how do kids react to this? Because I mean, I, I have, you know, obviously I, I have two kids and to them, it's really not, you know, it's not a big deal cause it's just everyday thing. But, um, like I did some outreach at my daughter's elementary school a couple of years uh, in a row and some kids, like you show them the frogs and they're absolutely en- enamored with them. It's like, they've never seen anything like it in the world. I mean, how, like how do, how do kids respond to that? Like when, you know, I mean, it's obviously it's an educational setting. Is it something that you know, you have like discussions about and like you get kids really interested in it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kids will never remember a thing I teach them, but I can guarantee you all my students and, and even the school in general is going to remember these dart frogs. And that's for sure. Um, you know, I've had two classes now. So I had initial class uh, maybe five or six years ago that I, 
we together built the 20 gallon um, dart frog tank for the Oyapok. So, I mean, that was just a great experience. Uh, we went through all the steps together. We built the whole thing in class. Uh, we brought the frogs in. We raised the tadpoles together. It, it was amazing. And every year since, I bring that tank into class, and we always uh, raise the dart frogs together um, from tadpoles. And it just it pulls in so many different aspects of learning. Uh, this year with my class, uh, I had a, a friend of the family um, gave me an old 110-gallon aquarium. So we uh, we built a 110-gallon aquarium for Silverstone High in my class. And, uh, man, it's like kids are constantly um, wanting to go look. They finished their math work. Uh, Mr. McIntyre, can we look at the frogs? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, people from other classes at recess, oh, Mr. McIntyre, can we come in and look at the frogs? Yeah, sure, come on in. Um, it, it has it's an exciting thing and um I, I just think it's it's one of the greatest things that i've done as a teacher is bring these frogs in because we learn so much about them we learn so much about uh, you know biodiversity and it's it just makes being in the school and in the classroom exciting to have to have something like this in it oh absolutely and i think it's important too i think that to to have an you know an, an intimate understanding and appreciation for wildlife in this type of setting i think i think it goes a long way i mean i feel like we've become so far removed from anything in the natural world to have something like that it's, i mean especially i mean i mean those kids are really lucky to have that i can't i can't imagine that many of the schools have you know have someone like you on a faculty who can show them dar frogs i, I I'm, I'm jealous i wish i was a kid in your class <laughs> well the, the one thing too is um it, it's funny i, I actually um, I, I work at the same school that I went to as a kid and, uh, and I only live around the corner from my school. So, um, that has been the big help. The fact that, uh, you know, I can go in, uh, I can get access to go in on the weekend and spray and feed the frogs if I have to. Um, and I can do the work there. I think if I lived far away, uh, I didn't have access to, uh, to the building, uh, on after school hours, it might be a different story. So there's sort of a few factors that have all kind of come together in order to make the whole thing happen. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely exciting and definitely something that, uh, that the kids, uh, are going to remember. Yeah. I was going to ask you that. I was, if, I was curious if you, if you leave the tank there all year, then that would be kind of, kind of tough. Yeah. So basically what's happening, uh, the 20 gallons, I always just kind of carry them with me. I normally bring them home on March break and Christmas break as well. Uh, just so I don't have to go back in every day on those holidays. Um, now I had the 110 gallon tank in there. So this is going to be a bit of a trickier one. So I've, uh, I've got silver stone in there, but they're all ready to go out in June. So I'm going to, uh, have the frogs out in June. I'm going to basically seal the tank and go in and, and, probably spray it once uh once a week really good just for the plants and then uh next year same thing keep the keep the frogs in for the year and then i'll have uh something that's either going to be uh you know being sold at the end of the school year or i'll just uh have to bring them back to my house and put them in uh, in another tank for a couple a couple months during the summer gotcha yeah i've, I've been slowly trying to like sneak um dark frogs into my place of work and um you know same 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 challenge i uh it gets very hot in the summer so yeah. i i really don't want to have them in a spot where if i'm not around or if i'm you know i'm off or whatever or even just you know just during the day it can get really hot and get above 80 in some of the you know some of the spots in the building so yeah, I, it's, it's, on... yeah it's it's challenge it's like well you know i have to find the right spot and someone's going to start yeah. asking why are these things still here 
(laughs) (laughs) I've been in contact with my custodians and with the school boards. We've got my class regulated that the the temperature never drops on the weekend. You know, with certain businesses, they'll drop the temperature on weekends when nobody's in. So uh, I've made sure that that won't be an issue and try to do everything I can to to keep them uh, at a a constant temperature. Well, that's good. That's, that's, That's good that you've got that kind of relationship there. Yeah, exactly. So... I want to ask you, you have a lot of frogs making a lot of cultures. You have a lot, a lot of tanks. What, in your opinion, makes a good frog room? Because you not only have, I mean, you, you, you keep for fun, you keep for the enjoyment of the hobby, but you also breed, you know, to get your frogs out there. If you were to make a frog room from the grounds up, what would you, what would you do? How would you set it up and what would you use? <clears throat> Yeah, well, um, for me, if you're having the frog room, it's got to be um, easy access. So you've got to be able to get in and out of your your vivariums. Now, um, I I hand mist, which if I could go back and redo this again, I would definitely put in automatic misters, and that might be something I'll do in the future. But I mean, for me, with a frog room, whether you have, you know, I know a lot of people like to get your their their frog uh, vivariums all all dirty on the front because they think the frogs like that and they breed better. But for me, you know, with a frog room and having it in my house, uh, it's got to be aesthetically pleasing. So, you know, uh, I like to keep things uniform. Uh, I like to make sure that the vivariums are not only, you know, the best for the frog. So tons of hiding places, uh, lots of plant growth, um, you know, everything, uh, nice, uh, um, microphone in the tanks but you know when i have you know i got three kids so when i have friends come over and i have uh, we have parties or social gatherings you know people want to come over and they want to see it so um you know to make it aesthetically pleasing like i've got them on you know uh sort of identical racks they're all laid out i'm using all ectoterra so it's a uniform um type of a setup and i try to keep the glass clean too you know they have the the folding front doors which has never been a problem for me but um i try to keep them clean and uh and, and make sure that they they look nice when, when people come over uh one thing i would do if i could do it over again though um if i could put my racks on some type of uh caster or rollers just because the east clean behind them i find that's the biggest problem is that you know, uh, obviously with the humidity, uh, cobwebs, spiderwebs all over the place, you get fruit flies that get out. They're all dead behind the tanks. And so in order to clean it, you know, I've got exoterra tanks on, you know, top and middle racks that have, you know, three inches of water on the bottom and weigh a ton with all the driftwood. So in order to, to really do a thorough clean, it's it's a, it's a nightmare. So if you could do something to, to, to roll the racks or move them, that would be one thing that I would highly suggest. But, uh, you know, everything's got to be for the frogs first, but if they're going to be in a frog room and if people are going to see them, they're going to be display, um, you know, do it upright, you know, do the nice background, um, get some interesting plants and, and make them look nice for everybody. Do you have a favorite species? If I were to say to you, Hey, you got to keep one species or one locale, what, what would it be? Well, I, I'm asking myself this question all the time because, uh, you know, I, I love the dart frog hobby. I, I love dart frogs. I'm, I'm going to have them for a long, long time. But, you know, to make 72 cultures a week, um, to breed them all, I've got three kids. I, I got a lot of hobbies myself. You know, in a, in a few years, I see myself winding down. And my, my, my long-term plan is to go down and get rid of everything but one tank. 
uh, and it's going to be a massive tank and it's going to be a, an impressive display tank. And I keep thinking to myself, okay, if I had to have one, <laughs> um, you know, what would it be? And, uh, you know, I, I love tanks and nice and bold, but you can't put them in groups. And, uh, I think, I think for me, and because this was the frog that, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I felt very, a lot of pride that I was able to get them breeding. I, I feel pride that, um, I've got them back in the hobby where I think they were, you know, almost gone was the uh, Amarega pepperi. You know, I love the fact that they're yellow, they're green, they're blue, they're big, they're colorful. They have my favorite call out of any of the tanks. Um, uh, and I like the fact that I've had this, uh, nice connection with Mark Pepper over them. Uh, I think if I could have one, that would be my, my only frog. Cool. Sure, you sure you don't yeah. want it to be an erratus? <laughs> well, you know what, though? You know what the funny thing is? You know, the well, I've got uh, Costa Rican erratus, and they're the only erratus I've got. But, boy, I, I have my brother-in-law come over, and, you know, out of all my frogs, uh, I've got my erratus and, and one of my not nicest looking tanks. And he comes over, and he says, man, he just he's obsessed with those frogs. And, and I've been saying it for years that, it doesn't matter whether you're going out and getting, you know, hysteronica that are a couple thousand dollars or whether you're getting erotis. I mean, they are all really spectacular and amazing in their own right. And I look at, you know, all my frogs and, uh, you know, I've got Bacchus sometimes, uh, Dendrobates Bacchus, and they're my shyest frog. But when I see them, I go, oh, man, forgot how cool you guys look sometimes. So, um, yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a funny thing with, with certain uh, types of frogs. I, I just – I love them all, but I think Pepperai is my number one. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree. I mean, they're they're. I'm looking at pictures of them on on my computer right now, and they are they're pretty awesome. The Pongoensis looks pretty cool too. I, I I'm intrigued because it's this tiny little tiny little guy. Yeah, I I'm a big fan of them. Um, the only reason why they wouldn't be my my personal favorite, although some people might like them for this, is I just prefer a little bit of a bigger frog, which is why I like the Pepperi, the Silverstone, the Trivitata, the Yellow Bassera. I just like the bigger ones. You can see more uh, in the tank. You know, when I have little kids come over, they can pick them out right away. Um, but don't get me wrong, the Pongoenses are cool. And, and funny enough, the the bilinguists, man, they just they look spectacular sometimes as well too. Uh, I mean, here we go. We're talking, the list just keeps going on and on and on. And I know even chromes are probably the most common Amarega, uh, in the hobby. And, um, when, it, when you see them in person and you see this kind of this chromey green blue color, uh, it's just like, wow, what a, what a cool looking frog too. So, uh, it's, it's going to be a tough one when that time comes for me to narrow it down. All right. I take back what I said. Bilinguist is, I think bilinguist is my favorite. <laughs> I'm just i'm yeah. scrolling through pictures right now this is i'm sorry this is a beautiful frog it has every color in the rainbow yeah. in it it's awesome yeah those those uh bright flashes on their uh on their back legs um yeah of course you know like any any frog you know some have more vibrant colors than other just naturally but man if you get one with some nice yellow flashes and, and a nice red on the back man they just look spectacular and they call it crazy they're, they're just they're insane it's they're a constant in my house <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty cool. Luckily, they're not the loudest, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, Sean, we're kind of at the end, but I wanted you to just maybe give us, like, a couple of quick takeaways from, like, the genus. If somebody has really no experience with Amarega, wants to get a hold of some, what would your recommendations be for someone starting out? Yeah, my recommendation is they, 
you know, they are like other dart frogs, so don't be afraid um, that they're going to be a, a difficult frog. The only thing that you do want to keep in mind, especially if you go with a bigger one, they are a jumpier frog, and they definitely want a bit more space. You know, I would say definitely minimum uh, would be 24 long, but if you can go out and, and do 30, 36 inches uh, in a tank, um, that would be better. I mean, heck, if you have more room and you're doing um, something that's 48, I mean, the, the more space you give them, they're going to use every inch. Um, but, uh, yeah, don't be afraid. Just give them the space they need. And after that, just just enjoy them like you would any other dart frog. Cool. Well, Sean, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, enlighten me because I know, absolutely, well, now I know. Now I know more than I did two hours ago. So I, <laughs> I want to, yeah, no, it's cool. I, I love hearing about new species and new and new genera. And, uh, you know, again, here in the, uh, the U.S., these aren't really that common, so I really don't have much of a frame of reference. But I want to thank you for sharing your insights with us. Hey, it has been my pleasure, you know, and the one thing I, you know, just, just to say too, it's, it's, you know, I'm just sort of a, a regular hobbyist that got into this and was, I was in the right place at the right time being so close to Mark, Parp, Mark Pepper and understory that, you know, people ask me all these questions, you know, how do you get certain things going or, or this and that, and, you know, I only know what I know just from, um, just from trial and error and from luck and talking with Mark, um, when you get him on the show in a couple weeks, um, I, I'm going to have to listen to this, uh, to that podcast as well, because he's going to knock your socks off with his in-depth knowledge of, of dart frogs in general, but especially Amarig or anything you're going to ask him, um, because that's where your real, uh, wealth of knowledge is going to come from. But, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully you got a little bit from me and it was a definitely fun talking to you. That was my pleasure. I definitely got a Definitely learned a lot from you. And look, you know what? It's this world, this community, this universe that we live in. Uh, there's people contribute on so many levels. And I, I, I like to think that all of us contribute something in some way, shape or form, whether we're just whether we're hobbyists, whether we're you don't necessarily you don't have to breed these things for a living to be able to share experiences with them. I, you know, I like to hear from. Yeah, I like to hear from anybody who's got something to contribute. And um, yeah, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise. I, I, I mean, you shared, shared quite a bit. I, I, I know more now than I ever did. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. So Sean, if anybody wants to find out more or like follow, you know, check out any of your social media or anything like that, how would they, um, how would they find out more? Yeah. Um, social media, um, you know, I'm on the, uh, you know, the regular big, um, dart frog Facebook groups, but, uh, Instagram, I think I'm Redbeard 0511 and, uh, yeah, just, you know, come and follow me on there. And, uh, you know, I mainly just, uh, periodically post some of my, uh, my dart frogs and, um, uh, quite often it's my Amarega. So, you know, uh, definitely a species you don't see, um, too many photos of. So if you're interested to, to check them out, um, you can, you can look me up there and if anybody has any questions, uh, about acquiring them or just questions in general about husbandry, feel free to reach out and I'm always happy to, to answer anybody's questions. Yeah. You've got some really great photos on your Instagram. That's, uh, and it's, it's like almost all them. Like I, I never even realized that there were that many species and locales in the trade. <laughs> they're really, they're really, be they're really beautiful. And they, you take some great pictures too. These are really cool. Yeah. And people ask me all the time what I use for a camera. It's my, just my iPhone. <laughs> a a, a well-placed iPhone is more expensive than some other cameras that are out there on the market for sure. Yeah. 
All right, everyone. Again, I want to thank Sean for taking the time to come and talk to us about Amarega. And I hope you guys enjoy this. I know it's a subject I've been wanting to cover for some time. I hope you guys you know, enjoy it. I want to thank Sean so much for taking the time to come and talk to us. And for everybody out there listening, of course, thanks everybody for the support. And I've got some good stuff coming up, as I kind of hinted at earlier. So be sure you check out what's coming up in the upcoming weeks. I want to thank you all for listening. And I will check up, uh, catch up with you guys again next time.